Welcome to episode 117 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever. And because we have a special guest, that line might actually be true this time, or at least one of them is a great mind. And we're discussing our passion for Linux. I'm Ryan, and with me today are my superhuman podcasting friends. Noah, how are things, sir? Hey, they are good. I am... uh... I'm I'm doing good. I'm finally getting over my my sickness and my cough and my death. So that that's a good sign. We are all very happy about that's... that. And Michael, how have you been? I've uh, been very uh, hectic and busy this week, but also sort of over the sickness. It just kind of morphed into something else. So that's fun. Everybody getting over the sickness. There we go. Yeah. And we also have a very special guest this week, Chris. Chris, how are you, sir? Hello, I'm pretty good. I've just mostly been working on my Neo Cities website and looking forward to Game of Thrones. Yeah, nice. everybody's looking forward. Yeah, everybody's to looking forward to Game of Thrones except today? Michael. Is that today, Sunday, the day uh, we're yeah. recording? Yeah. Oh, confession, goodness. I don't watch that show. Oh. Yeah, we, we know. Yeah, we're not shocked because anything that's awesome, you would obviously be. You know, well, no, it's that he has to pay for it. If somebody would give them their oh, HBO credentials, he would love love to watch it for sure. I'm not. That seems like the humanitarian thing to do. I might have to help with that. <laughs> So for those who might not be aware, Chris Weir is a YouTuber with a very popular Linux and technology channel, Chris Weir Digital, where he makes videos on Linux software and all things open source. Chris was interviewed way back on episode 23 during the first iteration of the show, so you can go check that out. But before we get to what everyone has been up to this week, I just wanted to get some updates from you, Chris, since the last time you were here and appeared. So one of the questions I had when I was watching the interview back on episode 23 was back then you were talking about Ubuntu Mate a lot. So is Ubuntu Mate still your distro of choice? Uh, It's still the distro that I tend to recommend people in my personal life pick up when they're trying to get away from Windows 10. If they're, you know, looking for something that they can just use and get out of the way, which Windows 10 obviously is not, then Ubuntu Mate is definitely still my go-to on that one, but I'm a distro opera at heart. So what I'm running at the moment is I've got a laptop over here with MX Linux. Nice. Um, and that's that's really nice. Um, it, the, the laptop doesn't really have particularly high requirements, so I just wanted something that's lean and, and runs fast. And, and boy, you know, MX Linux runs fast. I also used MX Linux to restore an old laptop for uh, for a family member as well who... I mean, this was a Windows Vista era laptop, so I needed something about as light, but also... Uh, user-friendly as you can get. MX Linux fit that bill completely, perfectly. So that's been running away tickety-boo uh, for uh, for quite some time now. <laughs> but for my main machine here, uh, I've got Manjaro. Um, and nice. I I like Manjaro in the sense that you don't have the scheduled updates, so you can just keep, keep it rolling, keep it running. Um, but you also get pretty new software that comes down the pipeline quite easily. So I do a lot of streaming, I do a lot of gaming. So when there's new NVIDIA drivers, it's just a matter of just waiting for them to arrive. New versions of OBS, they just come through the door. Um, And as a matter of fact, actually, although it's, of course, an Arch-based distribution, surprisingly enough, I don't even find myself using the AUR at all. Because nowadays, if there isn't a um, piece of software in the Manjaro repositories, I tend to look for like, go to to flat packs or app images and that pretty much has all my bases covered in fact i'm running the uh flat pack of the piece of software that we're doing this uh this podcast on right now and it seems to be running really fine 
as well, which is uh, which is quite nice. So yeah, just to sort of. Um, but that's not to say that I've I've abandoned Ubuntu Mate. Um, it's an absolutely wonderful distribution, and one of the things I like about it is that it's kind of got that, it, like it 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 acts like the way that you expect it to. Like there's a lot of um, sort of reinventing the wheel all across the tech sphere um and you get it on windows you get it on you know mac and you certainly and you do get it on linux to some extent you get gnome when they you know reinvented the desktop there and even with some things with like kde even though it's a bit more traditional it still has modern applications to it and i gotta admit i don't know if this is me starting to sort of enter the realm of middle age but when things work the way that i like them to work it's nice to have desktop environments like mate like xfce that just maintain that sort of continuity um, where you just, where just everything works the way that you know, and it might not necessarily be super um, efficient in regards to when they keep, you know, making improvements uh, with, with new iterations of GNOME and, and KDE, but it's, it's, it's just being so familiar with what you have, you know, grown to learn to use that, um, that it just does the job and, uh, and it's comfortable doing so. Um, but my uh, a lot of my family use uh, Ubuntu Mate, and they wouldn't try anything else right about now. They they love it. You've been uh, doing your YouTube channel since is it 2013? Uh, yeah, that's right. What uh, what are some of the changes that you've seen covering Linux back in 2013 versus today in 2019? Uh, there has been a lot. I think the biggest overall change has been the prevalence, the rising prevalence of Arch-based distributions. I think back in 2013. You- there might have been a few Arch-based distributions. There was, was, of course, Arch, but then you've got, uh, nowadays you've got Manjaro, you've got Antiogos, you've got Architect. And I know they've been around for a, for a few years, but they sort of become a lot more pop, uh, popular these days. And uh, and I think that might have more to do with things like the gaming crowd, the multimedia crowd, um, who sort of, you know, there, there are new features being added to things like OBS or Caden Live all the time. Also, I have noticed that when it comes to Linux as well, is that, where there used to be a lot, a lot of discussion about the distributions, and there still is, of course, today, um, there's also a lot of discussion around um, things, you know, th- that you, more of the software on top of it. I mean, you know, who hasn't had a long and lengthy discussion uh, about Proton, for example, and, and all the things yeah. that's brought in? And Proton has completely, you know, changed the game when it comes to, to Linux as well. Thanks. Yeah, I totally agree. And the 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 Proton is like, we've we've talked about it on this show multiple times, so it's like a huge game game, game changer. Um, but um, what kind of content are you working on right now in like the coming months for your YouTube channel? Well, that is always uh, something of a challenge. In fact, I suppose nowadays, you know, it's trying to work out to say something about Linux that hasn't already been said. Um, but um, I've, I've sort of been, you know, um, uh, moving my content a little bit further afield. I've been, I did a recent video talking about uh, the British cup of tea, which I'm actually quite proud of. Uh, and seems to have gone down quite well. Uh, I've talked a little bit about some of the tech legislation, particularly the EUCD as well, uh, European uh, Union Copyright Directive. Uh, tried to take a bit of a balanced uh, look uh, at that and try not to sort of lean in too much into the hype and the the fear about it. Although, you know, there are some things to, to be concerned about with it, of course. Um, uh, what else? Well, actually, um, I'm probably going to be talking a little bit about NeoCities as well. I don't know if you guys are familiar with NeoCities. Um, it's basically I've only, actually it's, I've seen it only because of your channel and you talking about it on your videos. So I looked yeah. into it. It's really interesting because it, it feels like a modern approach to like the old GeoCities. 
It is. That's exactly what it is. It's That's also, what I was thinking in my head. I was like, is the thing GeoCities or NeoCities? <laughs> okay, gotcha. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. It's one of my favorite online services these days. They have a really good free tier, but I've recently upgraded to the subscriber, the, the, the supporter tier. And it, yeah, basically it's like a, a content management system of t- sorts that's on their hosted environment where you just put in the HTML code, you put in the CSS code, you could put in a bit of JavaScript, but to be honest, I, I most of what I do, I don't, you know, I, I kind of want to keep it, uh, you know, keep it simple with that kind of thing. And, um, and just sort of play around with, with the code in a much more simple way. And um, it's, it's just one of my favorite things to tinker around with because it's something so simple and straightforward and almost like what the web should be. You don't have to necessarily have all these fancy PHP-based CMSs if all you're doing is throwing up a glorified text document. And it sort of you know, brings that, brings that back to what it should be, if you ask me. So it's a free web hosting service, but it sounds like it has tiers. And is it open source or what is the drive behind it? It is open source. It's something of a community project. Um, but yeah, so basically you can just sign up to it. They give you um, a small amount of space, but it's usually more than enough. I've not even broken 1%, I think it is, because I don't really use many images on the site. Um, and yeah, you just put in the code and, uh, and, and and they even provide you the SSL certificates and all that kind of stuff as well. That's all done for you. Uh, it's the it's one of the in fact even though you know we're talking about CSS and, and HTML which are just initialisms that probably would be intimidating to some people, I actually find it the easiest way to put together a website. In fact, um, I moved a website over to NeoCities, which used to be on a, on a WordPress uh, install because WordPress now is becoming just it's just becoming there's more things to do, more options, more buttons to click. It's kind and of becoming a beast to maintain, isn't it? Yeah. It really is, yeah. So I th- just get back to basics. I thought, and especially for for simple websites where you don't need that hulking great uh, CMS. I'm not going to lie to you, Chris. I can't tell you what great timing you have in this. <laughs> just this week. I contacted our people in that, that, that work for my company. And I said, Hey, I need to be able to put up a new website. I don't want to maintain an entire separate thing. Can we just tack it on to our company website? And they went, yeah, we don't really know if that's a really great idea. And I said, okay. And so I was looking for, I was, I was thinking to myself, I wish there was some place I could just host a free website. The, the best thing that I had up until now was I was just going to go download some sort of HTML template and 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 throw it up on on a subdirectory of a server and then just and then just route to it i'm absolutely going to sign in fact i've already signed up for neo city so i'm excited to play with it looks like you can even edit in markdown oh can you oh that's kind it of appears, cool, appears so yeah, yeah that's awesome Ooh, nice. so no i got a i got a twitter um you know somebody sent me a message in in twitter and they said hey dos geek your website's a complete pile of bleep if you want to pay me i'll fix it for you and I was like, well, that's a great advertising. Obviously, if I was gonna, yeah, what a pitch. What a great pitch. So the answer is no. But maybe I should switch to NeoCities here where it'll be much easier for me to maintain because WordPress, it's just I'm getting lost in my own site and it really shouldn't be necessary because most of my content is just static, right? It's just, hey, these are events that are coming up. These are you know new things. So yeah, I'm going to check this out as well. Yeah. And I actually, I, I did a bit of an experiment on um, on a bit of a journal part of my website to see if it was even sort of vaguely feasible to keep your own RSS feed running. And it is like it, just to, to put the, the code in directly for, for the RSS. Um, so I've even got that on one of my uh, one of my pages. So it's yeah, Very I mean, cool. it can even do I wouldn't necessarily advise it for particularly regularly updated 
uh, blogs or anything like that. But I've got a, blo um, a blog on there that, that has about four posts. So for something as simple as that, and it'll probably get maybe one or two over the course of this year, um, putting together the RSS uh, feed for it by hand as well is, uh, is a piece of cake. Although they even do supply you an, an RSS feed of sorts uh, that just uh, gets that ju that just demonstrates site updates, um, but that's not super useful perhaps for a lot of visitors to the site, especially if you're making small changes here and there. But yeah, it's, I mean, even the RSS side of things is um, is is quite straightforward from from my experience. Nice, very cool. Well, Chris, thank you again for guest hosting this week in Zeb's place. Um, we're going to now get into the section where we ask everybody how their week's been. So, Michael. How, what have you been up to this week? Well, um, I've actually been pretty busy despite uh, a, somewhat of a setback. I was uh, sick for a couple weeks ago, and I thought I was well, but turns out it was an ear infection that con it converted into an ear infection. Um, so I had to go to the doctor to get rid of, get rid of that. But during the process of all of that, uh, I somehow had a massively busy week for podcasting. So um, that's why I only have one earbud in, if you can't tell. Um, and there's, uh, like, so I did, uh, so far, this is the sixth podcast that I've done this week. I, I will be doing another one for this week in Linux. So total of seven this week. And, uh, that includes uh, a podcast I was on, uh, and I got interviewed on, uh, the ask Noah show on this Tuesday this week. And I was also right. the co-host for floss weekly on Leo Laporte's, uh, this week in tech network. And I, that we talked about um, on it was episode five twenty five where we talked to uh, Mycroft CEO, so that was pretty cool. Uh, I also did a, um, a podcasting for the Binary Times podcast where I I was kind of a guest host sort of on that that, that show, and that was that was pretty fun. So like overall, I have um, probably done more podcasting this week than I have like all last month. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting experience, especially when you can only hear a little bit out of one ear. So, um, uh, are they now, are they inviting you on or are you wedding crashing equivalent to the podcast? Well, I mean, technically one, it was kind of a wedding crashing. <laughs> um, but it, they, they invited oh, me in a, in a, uh, roundabout way. The other ones. Yeah. Okay. Technically the other one, I also kind I wedding crashed that one months ago <laughs> and then they, and then they asked me to come back. So. That you know, that okay. was one of those trolls I expected to go nowhere, and then you find out, well, maybe he did actually. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm proactive is what, is what I'm saying. Yeah. So, no, like, that's, that's pretty cool. I was, I was asked to come back, so that proves that I did do it right the first time, so that's okay. I don't feel like you mentioned me enough in your interview on the Ask Noah show, but overall, the rest of it was very good. I mentioned you, like, <laughs> once. Yeah, like once, maybe twice. Yeah. I don't know. To be yes fair, you've had your, you've had, you've had your, you, you guest hosted with me, and you didn't, you weren't just an interview. You actually guest hosted the entire episode with me, right? That's thank you, Noah. No, so I feel better yeah. about myself finally. Yeah. So speaking of Noah, how have things been for you this week, sir? Dude, I, I went nuts. So Michael thinks he, Michael's gonna cry about his uh, ear infection, and he went and did four, mm. four podcasts. I did Seven. almost. I did almost. 35 hours of radio this week uh and i couldn't i couldn't breathe like my my voice was going wow. and i couldn't and i kept coughing but made it through and uh and did, i think i was on four stations and yeah and, and almost 35 hours of radio it was crazy it was just nice. nuts non-stop broadcasting this week very cool. very cool i actually well, did some editing too so add an extra 10 hours and we'll count it 
Well, I don't have anything that exciting uh, for the week, but I did have my local Linux user group uh, meet, which went fantastic. Um, and we tripled in size from the first time that we did it. And awesome. the, the group got together and the, and the kids that were there and with some adult help built this Raspberry Pi touchscreen device here. So we had a little... Um, you know, a little fun project to work on while we're there, as well as uh, we got to help the business owner out, a local business coffee shop, because they were having a grand reopening and there wasn't a whole lot of people showing up. So when my, when the Linux user group showed up, it started getting packed. And you know, in a business, it's kind of like a dance floor. When nobody's there, everybody leaves it alone. But when you start seeing groups of people in the middle of a dance floor, everyone starts dancing, right? Nobody wants to be the first guy out there. And that's kind of how business is it. Uh, business works as well in traffic and foot traffic. So once the crew kind of converged, the Linux crew at the coffee shop, then all the people started coming around and we had people coming in to watch this be built while they were drinking their coffee and things like that. So it was just a really great time. And we got to help out a local business owner who also happens to work in Linux uh, as his main gig and is running this coffee shop on the side. So that was kind of cool. And he invited us back and gave us access to a whole room uh, for our Linux user group for the, um, you know, events coming up, the next one on May 4th. And That's we had awesome. some people travel as far as three and a half hours to get to this event. Nice. So I, I was just super impressed uh, and really loved seeing everybody and getting to meet some new people. So that was a ton of fun. Very nice. You actually kind of made me feel like I don't do enough on the ones that I run. Because like you showed some photos and stuff, you had like swag for people, had like projects to work on, and I'm like, hey, let's just talk. And I'm like, okay, I might have to do something extra. All right, here, let me, you want me to make you feel better, Michael? I can make you feel better. What's that? We hosted the first lug, and we neglected to understand the hours in which the university would lock the building that we were in. <laughs> so 15 minutes before the lug was scheduled to begin, the maintenance went around and locked all of the doors, and nobody could get in. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that is that unfortunate. Happened. So did you guys have it outside? Or no, what? we had it inside and I just every 15 minutes would run and, and bring in another gaggle of people that were lost and confused and walking into the door. <laughs> That's so funny. It was super embarrassing. Well, either way, definitely think about starting your own uh, local Linux group if you haven't. It's a ton Absolutely. of fun and it's a great way to meet and learn a ton of new things. I think the project, because there's a lot of interest in Arch there, shocking. I don't know if it's because I keep preaching, uh, but I think our next project is some of the individuals were scared to do the install of Arch. So I'm going to invite them to bring their computers to the next event in which we'll do a live install of arch right there at the event on their machine. So very nice. Make sure you have networking set up. Shut up, Michael. All right. So just a reminder to the community that the page for self that Southeast Linux fest is live and you can book your room now either at the main event or if that's full, then uh, find a surrounding close by hotel there. And this time, Thanks to you and your amazing donations, Zeb has booked his flight. You're going to be able to join the entire Destination Linux crew June 14th through 16th for all kinds of Linux goodness and shenanigans that we're going to pull there at Self. And if you can't make it, you will still be able to, on our individual channels and perhaps the Destination Linux channel as well, we'll be doing some live um, feeds on our individual channels. We'll also be doing a Destination Linux podcast there. We will also have an Ask Noah show 
that we will be uh, doing some work on there as well. So even if you can't join, you can still be there. We'll make sure that you get a view into some of the fun that we're going to have. But definitely check out Southeast Linux Fest and get your reservations in now. Yep, and I actually have an announcement. I submitted two talks for them to pick from for like for me to do at the conference, and they picked both of them. So I'll be doing two talks this year instead of the awesome. one. So that's going to be fun. Can we get a hint of what the topics might be? Uh, one is uh, Caden Live uh, Part Two Redo. Uh, nice re- return return of the Caden Live, uh, and like then the it. other one is going to be a uh, marketing for open source. Very cool. And Noah, you did a talk last time. Are you thinking about doing one this round? I did not submit a talk because I am on staff this year at Self. And so my okay. job this year is going to be making sure that people have Linux computers to present Kden Live on and not Windows computers in which they can't present Kden Live on. Right. Uh, so that will be my job. So that's what I will be doing. And I'll also be hosting the official live self stream so we will have a uh, a a live stream that will be occurring that you'll be able to check out some of the talks as well as get some of the commentary and uh, a couple of guests that i'll bring on uh, i've got this uh, uh good friend of mine ryan he's going to join us from destination linux and this guy that uh i tolerate called michael and i'm going to bring him on and chat with him and then of course yeah. zeb we're flying him in so we'll uh, we'll have him on and and get to chat a little bit but yeah we'll that that will be the official live self stream in addition to the destination linux and the as noah shows Awesome. Man, that Ryan and Zeb guy sound awesome. They do. Yeah, the yeah, other guys, cool. like, yeah. His hair's good, though. Yeah, his hair's, um, his hair's good. So next up, Michael, can you tell us what's uh, in store for us in our email this week? Absolutely. We got an email uh, for, uh, first, so this, first of all, it says, uh, I'd like to let you know that I love the podcast. I recently became a patron to get the full unedited videos. I thought you were joking when you said how much you guys mess up, but it absolutely ex- exceeded my expectations, <laughs> and I love it. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> I was curious to ask you guys, have, have you heard of itch.io or itch.io? I'm not really sure if I'm actually supposed to say that or whatever. Uh, I hear a lot of Linux gamers and podcasters talk about Steam and their Linux support versus GOG and their DR, DRM-free titles. Uh, itch.io not only has DRM-free titles and Linux support, but the client is also uh, FOSS. Uh, beyond that, it is fanta- a fantastic source of indie games, and in my opinion, it's the best platform for indie developers to get started on. Like I've used it uh, as far as like um, trying to try out the client, but I've actually not any purchased any games yet. So, have you have any experience with it? Uh, yeah, I've got quite a bit of experience with it. I love it. I'm, I'm completely on board with this guy here. Um, it's quite easy to get uh, get up and running. Um, it's got it's got a huge selection of games on, but they're mostly in the indie realm. It's got one of my favorites on, Long Live the Queen. I uh, recommend anyone nice. check it out. Um, it's, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll just sort of like leave it at that because it is just worth discovering on your own in that regard. Um, and one of the things I particularly like about it is is it's, it's one of the things it does a little bit better than the GOG setup, which is it allows you to download the games without having to worry about the client itself. So if you go to GOG and you buy your game, you don't necessarily, in fact, with the with GOG, their client isn't even available for Linux. So you have to download the game as a as a package, um, you know, as, as a package file, as a binary, mm-hmm. uh, which is fine. But they put that very much on the second rung of things. Whereas with Itch.io, yes, you can install your game through the client, and it's as easy as installing a game through any client. But it's just as easy just to download the tarball or zip file or whatever, and install the game um, into a games folder of your choice. Um, and that's always, to me, like I've always felt that just uh, sort of shows the user choice because, you know, not everyone's going to want to have the, the itch.io client. I mean, it's a good client, don't get me wrong, 
it's also uh, based on electron for those that might want to know that um, but um, yeah you can also just go to the, to the website download the games as they are they're right at the top of the page usually um, and then just run the games as they are um, and it's got a load of game jams on including um, I don't know if you, you guys probably know Gardner the Linux gamer uh, but his games jam is being run through itch as well um, and he does that every year as well as countless other games jams so you can pick up loads of, of really interesting titles titles that you always are try, trying to do new things with you know mechanics and um and all that kind of stuff um so yeah totally uh, i recommend anyone check it out so i checked it out when i got this email from dax here and you know it's um zeb would hate it okay because it's a lot of pixelated indie games he wouldn't uh, probably like it. But I think anybody who's a true gamer and, you know, loves to look at indie level gaming, and some of them are amazing. Some of them have great graphics, but for the most part, you're going to see a lot of, you know, indie looking games. Uh, there's just a lot of selection and choice out there. I like that, that it's not just a, a store where you just get free stuff, although there is free things there. You can actually support the developers. You can follow them. It's a, they've created a kind of a whole Steam architecture because that's the closest thing I could relate it to there of community along with the development of the games there. So uh, I thought it was amazing. I hate that I've missed out on it so long up to this point and we'll definitely be looking to, you know, find some good games on there and also support the developers by purchasing some of the games I like. There was also a lot of situations where the games had demos of the ones that you would purchase. So before you end up spending some money, you could definitely go in there and demo it and try it out. But their client is also fantastic. It's just a really, really well done client. A lot of times these clients are buggy. They're messy sometimes when you see some of these platforms people put together. But this was not the case at all. It's well thought out. It's very easy to navigate. Yeah, I really, really dig this and love that Dex brought it up to us. Yeah, and there's also a really cool feature that uh, for developers that if you are a game developer, they have this where you decide what percentage goes to you and goes to the platform. So it's instead of like here's like a, a flat rate, you actually get to kind of collaborate with them and what you think that that's what's worth it to you and kind of stuff. So that's pretty cool. Yep. So we want to hear from you, our listeners. Send in your favorite. This is what we're looking for this month. Linux software tip or trick. We would love to know what tools make your Linux experience amazing, like Dax sending in here. You never know what tool you might say that you think everybody knows about and then find out that none of us knew or only a couple of us knew or nobody in the community knew about it. So definitely take a look at your library, look at your favorite software or your favorite tip and trick in the terminal and send it over to us at comments at destinationlinux.org. Uh, in the news this week, for, for we'll start off with distro news, and that is the 18.2 release of MX Linux. This yeah. is the latest version of a the Debian-based distribution uh, known as MX Linux. It's a combination of, like the name, if you're not sure, it's like a Antics and Mepis uh, combination and stuff. And it, they're like a very, they have a partnership as with development and collaboration with the Antics team. Uh, but this is a really interesting distribution because it's lightweight and powerful and has a ton of really cool features. And the latest version has them updating to Debian 9.8 Stretch. They've also updated their uh, Firefox build for like having the latest version of Firefox. Uh, you also get uh, some new uh, uh, encryption cipher options that are configurable for the MX installer. 
So it allows you to like select uh, different like install locations for your encryption and, and that kind of thing. Uh, they've also done some updates to the MX manual, which is always fantastic to see because there's a lot of times where developers will leave uh, the wiki and documentation as like a secondary thing and or maybe even not even do it in some cases. So it's Who reads like, those things? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But apparently some people do find them useful, uh, who, who, no, whoever that great. might be. Uh, yeah. But they also did some really interesting things of doing some uh, upgrades to the uh, MX repo manager. Um, and they've also, uh, what's really cool, I think, is that they added the uh, the, the Antics Live USB system, uh, so they, which they have like persistence for the, like using MX Live. That's so great. Like yeah. that, that is a, a fantastic feature. Um, you know, like be, being able to do uh, having a distribution that has live, like basically any distribution can have live, but having built-in persistence is a very nice, convenient thing to give to someone. If you like have a happen to have a USB drive, you want to have someone try out Linux, and they could just use MX Linux and just get started right away. So that's pretty awesome. So for people who may not know, Michael, do you want to explain why persistence is important or what would be a use case for it? Sure. Uh, persistence is the ability to have um, st like stored uh, configuration files or documents or things that you change on your system. So if you set up a live USB by taking an ISO and then burning it to a USB drive like uh, with Etcher or something, it will put the, the data on the, the drive so you can boot it and reuse it. But as soon as you change anything or uh, you know turn off the computer, or reboot, all of those settings and changes will be lost because there's not it's not saving to anything specifically. It's just saving it to the RAM. So while you're continuing to use the system, it will continue to accept those changes, but as soon as you reboot, all of those are gone. Whereas when you have persistence, it will save it to the drive in some form or another and allow you to have, when you reboot, you have all the things that you changed still there for you. Yep. So uh, what I love is Dolphin's a friend of the show. He's been interviewed here. One of the last interviews, episode 47, if you want to go check it out. There's a ton of love for MX out in the community. And Chris, you were talking about utilizing MX on several of your machines, which is perfect timing for this story as well. But one of the, some of the feedback that we've received recently is about accessibility when we talk about distributions, asking if we could do better in explaining some of the accessibility options that distros have in them because there are people watching the show who have, you know, various uh, needs for, you know, having accessibility options built into the distro to even be able to install it, which is something, you know, I hadn't thought of a lot before, but in, since Dolphin's a friend of the show, I reached out to him uh, and asked him about some of the accessibility options in there for MX Linux for those interested in installing it. So MX does include high contrast themes for low visibility impairments and some large size themes as well and on-screen keyboard for mobility impair uh, impairments. There is a tool that Debian has called Orca and Orca essentially when you're doing an install reads the screen. And this is very important for those with any site impairments that need to do an install because without that screen reader, there's no way to know what is going on on the screen. So it's very important. It's great that Debian has that. Unfortunately, Dolphin said they have not been able to get it to work in MX Linux and he would love to have it implemented in MX Linux. So if anybody is willing to help and tackle the bugs there, he would love to get that running. So just out there in the community. If someone wants to help with that feature, definitely reach out to Dolphin or the MX team on their website and see if there's some assistance you can get or figure out how to install it and let them know what you did. Um, but if you've not tried MX 
Linux yet, I think you're missing out. It's one of, it's always been in my top five list, one of my favorite distributions out there. I think it's one of the best Debian distros you can run. Uh, Chris, anything to add since you're also an MX fan on this latest release? Have you checked out 18.2? Uh, I've not checked out 18.2. There are a few things about, um, in fact, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the live persistence because that was something I wasn't aware of. And I don't even know if many other distributions do live persistence these days. I know it used to be a big thing maybe, was it seven or eight years ago? But nowadays it seems to have to, to not be the hot new thing. So I'm glad that MX Linux are keeping that alive. Uh, but it's also good in regards to the NVIDIA drivers. They have a really easy way to set up uh, NVIDIA drivers and also your um, your proprietary plugins, you, you, you know, whether or not you're inclined to, but you have the ability to install things like Flash on it really easily as well, which have historically been a little bit trickier for uh, for Debian-based distributions. So um, for your more um, non-tech savvy, but also FOSS sympathetic user, MX Linux fits the bill really, really well. I've used it to fix up old machines before, and I've put them in front of people that don't know a Windows from a Mac, and they've just managed to sort of ease right into it. So yeah, it's it, it consistently would make one of my top five as well. It's- would you put somebody on MX Linux over something like Ubuntu Mate? Uh, it depends on the machine in question. If the machine was particularly old, and I wanted to sort of revive it, then I would go MX Linux. But Ubuntu Mate has that wider community support, or at least uh, as of time of now, I guess. Sure. But, no, um, I agree with that. Hmm. I, 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 to be honest, it's not, it's not like they're worlds apart either. Like if, for example, uh, Ubuntu Mate disappeared tomorrow, I could think of five distributions that would do, you know, that, that I could uh, recommend in its place. Um, I think with MX Linux, it's a li- it has a little bit more of a uh, a standpoint that it, 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 on top of all the stuff that it does, on top of the user friendliness, on top of the support for um, devices like NVIDIA graphics cards, it is also really quite lightweight by comparison. And I think that's a, a big point in its favor. Also, of course, uh, MX Linux famously not using systemd. And um, I'm not perhaps technically savvy enough to really understand the nuances of the pro versus anti systemd arguments. But um, as a as a sort of more broad Linux user, I like the fact that there's at least choice on that system level of, um, you know, for, for those that want to, to make use of the options. Very good. AV Linux has a new release of its Debian-based audio video distribution. This is version 2019 4.10. For those that are not familiar with AV Linux, it is a pre-configured uh, distribution designed to be a turnkey AV content cre- uh, creation distribution, pre-configured and ready to use as they put just install and create. So some of the features that they have are a custom real-time preempt kernel for optimal low latency audio potential, CPU governed for performance by default, extra tweaks for performance and meeting all of the criteria for real-time. Just a lot of really great things. I guess my question is, what is the advantage of these distros that are specifically designed for media content creation? And and I, I ask that, because everybody's workflow is different, right? Like it would be a little, I, I would understand if we were living in a world where everybody used OBS and everybody used Audacity and everybody had kind of the same similar workflow. And so we just had essentially these appliance machines that were running Linux and people wanted to have a distribution that was already pre-configured with all of these things. But that's really not the case. It seems like every time I work with a different content creator, they have an entirely different workflow with an entirely different collection of software. Yes, there are some of the main staples that are there, but everything varies. And then on top of that, not only do you have a 
AV distribution. You have multiple AV distributions. And I, I guess I just question, are there a lot of people out there that are going to do content creation and say, I am going to install a distribution specifically for content creation. I'm not just going to take my regular Linux laptop that I'm using for this, that, or the other regular Linux workstation that I'm using for this, that, or the other, and just install the tools I need. What do you guys think? Well, I know for me personally, when I came into Linux, the AV Ubuntu Studio at the time was super important because I didn't have anybody to go out there and say, hey, what should I use mm. to do audio interfacing? What should I do use to make my videos? You know, I could do web searches, but you know, a lot of times when you're doing, when you're searching through forums and things, number one, a lot of that stuff is dated. Um, number two, trying to figure out how to install it when you're used to a Windows platform where you go to a website, you download an EXE, probably with some viruses included, but you download it and run it and install it. It's fine. But when you're not, when you're just coming to Linux, like I was, I had, you know, wasn't extremely familiar with how to get things installed. So I would be using the software stores that were available uh, to get that software. So Ubuntu Studio was extremely appealing to me based on how they were describing it. I had all the things that I needed if I just click around and open all the programs to figure out, oh, that interface looks like a video recording software and that interface looks like an audio recording software. I had everything sure. there. So for a new user, I think it's good. I can also see if people are just wanting to, you know, quickly set up a studio without having to configure things like Jack and all of that stuff mm -hmm. out of the box. So, you know, if you, you know, get a, your latest Ubuntu, Gnome, Mate, whatever, you're going to have to, and you want to run Jag, you're going to have to go and install it and configure it and all that. Or you could just install this or Ubuntu Studio and you have all that work kind of done for you. So I think there's advantages to it. I'm not sure it's for everybody, but I love the idea of just booting into these ISOs just to see what tools that they use that I've never heard of. Because even to this day, I still come across some, I'm like, I never knew that existed. Yeah, and there's, there's also a, examples for like having just having Jack. If you've never used Jack before, tr the first time you try to install and configure Jack, that is a very complicated structure to get used to. Mm -hmm. So in this case, you could actually kind of like Ubuntu Studio and this, this and AV Linux would give you an opportunity to try out Jack and to see what's the big fuss about before you go through the process of trying to set it all up. Is there ever a point where somebody goes, hey, you know what, I, I, I like the fact that I have Ubuntu Studio, but now I would like to move on to a different distribution, but I can't because, take Jack, for example, Ubuntu Studio is the distribution that sets Jack up, and I don't know how to do that on myself, and essentially, not necessarily locks them in, but essentially locks them into one distro over the other. Is that a risk? I think maybe potentially for a while you're going to have to, and I think, you know, you're going to have to, because... A lot of them are going to utilize like KX Studio, you know, that that's kind of the go to here. Uh, I think at first you're going to be relying on their defaults and then eventually you're going to be configuring things for you. And once you get to the point where you're configuring that stuff on your own, you're probably at that point going to have enough knowledge to go set it up in any other distro for yourself anyways. But I think for a time period, yeah, you're going to be locked into their infrastructure. And certainly if you just want something that works and you don't want to go do your own configuration, just want to install it and go, then they probably would never leave. Or if they tested out another distro, like, well, I can't set up Jack, so I'm not leaving. Fair enough. And there's also so the stuff with uh, Ubuntu Studio where they're doing that whole new uh, install a PPA and get some of their tools in whatever Ubuntu yeah. flavor you have. Like that has potential to allow them to transition to stuff. See that to me seems a lot more valuable than an actual distribution, right? Like when you have something where you say, and I, I, I'll give you a perfect example. 
Rivendell is a is a automation system that is specifically designed for radio stations. And uh, Fred Gleason, friend of mine, who uh, was the lead developer or is the lead developer for Rivendell, all of the software that he writes, it's all open source and it's all inside of a repository. So the distribution, the appliance distribution for Rivendell is really nothing more than installing a fresh CentOS box, a minimal install, and then running his scripts depending on which things that you want installed. I think that to me seems like a, a much more useful resource to the Linux community than a full-on distro because yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you have an ISO that you can just plug in a flash drive and it installs the, the distribution. Now you have all the tools you need. But the nice thing about having those individual tools broken out or, uh, or collection of tools broken out into scripts and installation um, repositories is that you can you can essentially piecemeal together your and and add on the tools that you need to your existing Linux distribution, your existing Linux computer. I like that. I think it definitely adds a lot to. I, I love that a bunch of studios doing what they're doing. Um, I, I when you were talking about that, I was thinking back to my Linux days, and that's why I think both are kind of valuable to a degree. But I, I do I do like what Ubuntu Studio is doing to take it to a new level. Because at the point where you're brand new to Linux, the idea of running a script in a terminal is like Chinese. It's just, I wouldn't, what dot slash, what, what is an SH? What is this tar thing? Like, you know, all of this stuff is so foreign. So I think it's great that those options are available and I love that they're doing it. But I also think having a distro there with everything built in has a lot of advantages for people as well. Uh, do you reckon there could be a, a particular application, for example, if you're running or if 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 uh, if you're at a uh, Linux conference of some variety where there's going to be a lot of uh, requirement for live streaming, podcasting, that kind of thing, where you would possibly be bringing in machines that wouldn't you know that wouldn't usually be used for that? You could slap mm. on an ISO and you'd almost be there and ready to go with a number of machines. You know, sort of almost a drop in and go kind of distribution. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. You know, if you're if you're going into an area to quickly set up uh, something, you don't typically have machines set up for that purpose, but you're doing audio video work, then you could just put one of these ISOs on and, and be ready to go pretty much out of the box. Uh, Noah, you would be more familiar with that, but you probably always have everything set up anyway. So maybe not for you, but I could see the advantages for somebody in there. Yeah, but I still remember what it was like starting out, right? Like I still have, I still remember the very first time I was trying to get OBS set up. And at that point, really what I needed that night was I needed to have OBS working so that I was able to do a broadcast the next day. And I, I was interested in learning how to set everything up and install everything properly and all of those kinds of things. But I didn't have time that at that very moment to go through all of that. What I really needed was just to be able to plug a flash drive in and just boom, have something available. So I, I do understand, you know, I do understand the other side of that. Interesting. All right. So I am super excited about this next release. GIMP 2.10.10 has been released. And I was so excited until I saw in the Destination Linux group, people were already pinging Michael saying, is this it? Is this the time where all of the things that needed to be changed in GIMP are fixed? And then Michael was like, sort of. So we'll get into Michael's opinion <laughs> here in a second. But this is certainly a huge list of nice improvements here. So let me go through some of them. Line art detection in the bucket fill tool for comic artists is a new feature. Various usability improvements and transformation tools Sample merged option added to the heel tool and fixed in the clone tool. Parametric brushes now with 32-bit per channel precision. 
Easier brush and pattern creation flow on canvas layer selection, faster saving, exporting, and layer group rendering, initial DDS support, and many improvements in the GEGL, the image processing engine. The layer selection has been something of a frustration for a while in GIMP, and this latest change makes it easier by being able to find a layer in a list by using Alt plus middle click to select the layers by clicking on the pixels. This will also display the layer name in the status bar. So they're giving you multiple ways to find your layers now. And Michael, I remember when we had this discussion and we were talking about some of the things that would take GIMP to that next level. This is one of the things you brought up. Look, I've got tons of layers. I need to be able to find them and organize them quickly. So I, when I saw this, I was like, yeah. But then the next thing I thought really got us there, Michael, where they said they're allowing real-time, non-destructive, image manipulation here. So tell us some more about what your thoughts on, on somebody who's actually an artist that uses these <laughs> tools, what you thought of some of these enhancements. So there's a lot of stuff that's in here that is really good. And, and, and these are very much important features to be added for the future of GIMP and making it a, a bit competitor to the professional side. Uh, the the bucket feel uh, uh, is actually really nice because uh, even Photoshop has a very finicky uh, bucket feel. So this is really cool that they, the way they did it. Um, and the the, the on-canvas layer selection is really nice because even Photoshop is not that good in it. Um, but this allows you to, uh, when you hold Alt and you middle click, you can click on a pixel. And if you have multiple layers on top of that in that one pixel, it'll allow you to cycle through to find out which or find one really quickly. And it, it'll automatically adjust the uh, layer palette as well as the status bar telling you which one you're on. So it's a, it actually is a really nice, quick uh, way of doing the selection. So it's very much a good improvement. Um, the non-destructive aspects, while is definitely the most important addition to this release. It's not a lot of it. So the thing that there's a, that this is like a first version, first iteration of adding non-destructive, which is fantastic and awesome. Right. But the, like 90% of it is still destructive. So that's why it's not really like this release is not, you know, ready for professional users and stuff. Uh, however, the the heal tool and the clone tool adding adding those non-destructive features is fantastic because it allows you to uh, apply the heal tool uh, effects on a separate layer above the main layer so that the main layer's data is never touched which is exactly what non-destructive is and what they should be doing for everything as soon as possible because that's like that is a fundamental feature of all image manipulation software is to have non-destructive so the fact that they're on that path is very exciting to me. Uh, so I am I'm thrilled that this this release is coming because I've done all these all the up improvements to the uh, the Gaggle engine and everything like that. So like this is fantastic. And uh, while it's not exactly what I want it to be yet, I am really um, I'm really happy to see that it is on its way to getting there. Yeah, I would love to have a developer from GIMP on to talk to them and get some more insight. They're ridiculously talented, obviously, in what they've been able to achieve. I mean, for most of us, um, GIMP does everything we need as normal users and consumers. And obviously, there's a professional level out there, and they are headed for that as well to bring those features in. Yep. Noah, do you ever use GIMP, or is this something you just pay somebody else to 
Go build it. I no, I use GIMP all the time. I use GIMP is my go-to cropping tool. So if I take a screenshot of something, I'll go to and and crop it down. Any of my actual graphic things that I do, it's mostly assembly of stuff. And so for that, I'm typically working with vector graphics and thus I'm using Inkscape. Um, and so I'm a huge fan of Inkscape. But there, if I need to go and edit something or something else I'll do sometimes, sometimes every once in a while we'll go to maintain a website or we'll go to update something and you'll get a client and they don't have access to their original graphic images. And so what we'll do is we'll go and take a photo of their logo or whatever the highest resolution copy we can get is, we'll go into GIMP and use the selection tools to remove everything but the actual outline of the logo. Then we'll bring it back into Inkscape, use the trace tool to actually get a vector graphic from the original logo. And now we've got something digital to work with. Um, but I, GIMP is one of those things, you know, you have your install script that you maintain. GIMP is one of the first programs I install because it absolutely has to be on every machine that I use uh, because it is such a go-to tool. Awesome. Chris, what are your thoughts on GIMP? I love it. It's the best. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I use it for all my thumbnails um, and it's always been something, to be honest, I'm, I'm not exactly a high power, you know, I'm not like a power user in that regard. GIMP had everything I needed when it moved to the single window mode. Once it got rid of all yes. the... Yes. Oh, that was the greatest accomplishment ever. Yeah. So it's ever since then, I mean, it's been getting better and better and better. I mean, faster um, export times are always good and, and that kind of stuff. But uh, does it still use GTK2? Yes. Ah, okay. The the GTK3 will be added in the 3.0 release of GIMP when they do the full refractor release, which will have a lot of other non-destructive things too as well. So like, the, cool. they're coming out with a lot of new stuff that I am super excited about. I, I do like that you can actually still select the legacy icons as well. Uh, I, I can't say I'm too much of a fan of the monochrome icons because it's like they're just like not as identifiable, if you know what I mean. Um, yep. But you can just go into the preferences and switch them back. Which That's is probably good. to fit the more modern style of UI because when people who are professionals look at GIMP, they just look at it as a toy. And yeah. this is kind of like making it more polished for them in that way. Um, but I think that is kind of funny that they, they give you the options to go back if you want to. And they still give you the options to do the multi-window multi -window mode if you like that for some reason. But I agree mm -hmm. that single window mode is much more convenient and efficient. Just as, It's a lot easier to, to like move everything. Every time it loads, you don't have to move things around. It's just it's much nicer. Um, mm -hmm. But GIMP is, it, GIMP is a really good tool for 95% of users. Yeah, and we did say, you know, pros and not pros. And Wendy in our Telegram chat, chat said not good for pros dot 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 well not for all pros so obviously some pros can utilize GIMP. it depends on what you're uh, pro of i guess let's be more specific a, a pro yeah, of what specific type of thing if your main thing is image manipulation then shots fired michael fire i love it <laughs> i mean gimp is great no, you don't have to say anything GIMP is great and the dogs agree Uh, OBS 23.1 has been released, uh, a new release uh, that comes with new features and bug fixes. OBS is the go-to program for live streaming and desktop recording. Some of the new features of 23.1 include uh, additional or added optional Twitch activity feed panel when nice. account is connected to OBS, hidden by default. You can show it in the view docs menu. Uh, it's added Restreamio account integration. So for those of you that don't know, Restreamio is one of those web services that allows you to stream to something like both Twitch and YouTube uh, at the same time. Um, account integration is still currently only available in Windows. Uh, the added option to select color range to Linux video device source. 
uh, added ability to copy and paste filters from the mixer, added preview program labels to studio mode, added new settings icons, added a checkbox for bandwidth test mode in settings when using Twitch account integration, uh, added area scale filtering for sources as an alternative to point scaling, may preserve more detail on retro games. And in addition, they fixed several bugs. Uh, one that impacted Linux directly was the tray icon now uses icons from the system theme. What, what do you think of this update here, Chris? Because you probably utilize OBS quite a bit yourself. Yes. Well, I use OBS on, on a pretty much daily basis now. Uh, I use it mostly for, for Twitch streaming. And it is a pretty wonderful piece of software. It was always good when they you know, announced the, the, the first Linux port. I remember using it on Alpha, and it was actually pretty workable even back then. And it's only got better ever since. And it's, it was, it's quite nice to see it reach more and more distributions, native repositories as well. Uh, I'm particularly interested in seeing um, the attack release processing of the, you know, the expander audio filter. So that, um, that one should, uh, I mean, not that I think that it was necessarily particularly inferior before, but that's quite nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like, I mean, every time that they've brought out a new release so far, there has, have always been tweaks and, uh, you know, sort of small factors that, that improved it. I've liked the studio mode as well. So you can actually change one scene as another is being broadcast. Uh, that's particularly useful, especially when you're messing around with windows and, and bits and pieces. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, they give you a, a fair amount of filters as well for each of the, um, the various scenes for your webcams and, uh, and that kind of stuff. And as well as uh, you can also sort of play videos as part of the scenes as well. So if you happen to need a, like some be right back highlight real footage, then um, that's easy enough to, to, to slip in and go as well. So I did a um, community outreach on my YouTube channel, a poll to ask through the donations uh, that I'm giving all the money that I've made on YouTube uh, this month to Linux distributions and things out there, which one the community wants since they're watching it and kind of raising the money from the ads, which one they wanted, what tool or organization they wanted me to donate the money to. And OBS was just one of the options on there. And I couldn't believe how many people voted that as a huge percentage of wanting the donation to go to OBS. And it just shows you how popular this tool has become, not only for us, but for many people, apparently not even potentially doing streaming content, but perhaps recording documents or creating tutorials or other things that they're doing with it. It's just an incredible tool that I don't know if Linux could... It's one of those tools where... I don't know that Linux could be as successful without it that it's that it's it, been. It's it's become the standard. Yeah. It's become the standard in the streaming world. Like when you look at uh when you look at streamers, when you look at places that pop up for assets for streaming, one of the things that they market it as is, hey, this works with OBS. When when um, New Tech came out with their uh video over IP interfaces, one of the first software applications to support it was OBS. And the reason for that is because that they know that if you're going to do video streaming, if you're going to do video content creation, you're probably using OBS, or at least you're starting there, maybe move on to something later, but that's the starting point. And you're seeing that pop up in churches. You're seeing that pop up all obviously all over the gaming streaming scene. And, uh, and then the other thing is, and you kind of briefly touched on it, people who want to make tutorials and want to have a really 
uh, a really fancy way to grab their screen or want some extra options in doing some screen capture. This allows them to do that. This allows them to put an overlay. It allows them to choose what portions of the screen they're capturing, which windows they're capturing. They can, uh, in, in OBS, compose a scene that is collected of various different windows. Uh, and so it's become a very powerful tool. And the interesting thing is because it's open source, we know that the plug is never going to pull get pulled out from under us. So people like me are willing to base entire workflows and start entire shows with the presumption that we're going to have access to software like OBS. Yep, that's yeah, a great point. Me. And I've, I've also actually seen it being used quite a lot for podcasting as well because the yep. audio features alone on OBS are pretty wonderful. You can do a lot of compression on the fly, for example. So when you've got a several-way chat going where people's audio is going to be of different sources and of different slight, maybe, you know, slight differences in, in volume and compression on their, their, their end, you can then get a more consistent sound by fiddling about with some of the compression settings in the audio filters as well. Yeah, that's what we do. That's what we use for uh, doing this podcast, actually. It's OBS. So, like, OBS is a fundamental piece of the workflow for me and this podcast and everything that I do. And there's there's a lot of stuff that is a, a nice polish that they have done in this latest release. And I, I this is re- completely ridiculous, and I admit this, but this is really a, a nice feature for people who are just getting started in OBS. And that is when you hit the studio mode and it shows you the preview and, and like the actual like viewer, um, by, before this latest release, it didn't tell you what each of the boxes meant. And every time I would talk to someone, they're like, oh, it's multicam. It's like, well, technically, no, it's not multicam. It's a preview versus a like actual like recording section. And then now they actually have the label there. And I know that's not really important or anything, but I just think that it's nice that they're doing even like tiny little polishes like that to bring it to like yeah, that polish is important. I yeah. disagree. I'm saying it's, it's I'm saying it's not saying. important for me to talk about why it's a good thing for this release of me going like this is great. But it's like when I explain I show them the studio mode, like, oh, I understand it immediately now. It's like that's awesome. right. Absolutely. Yeah. So up next in the show, we have hardware news. And this is a really exciting uh, update from AMD. The second-gen Ryzen Pro and AMD Athlon Pro mobile processors have been uh, re- have been announced and are available for uh, laptops and uh, you know being built into like manufacturing and stuff. So this is this is great news for those who are looking for a Team Red laptop. Um, as they're planning to include these new processes in the later uh, models of this year for like AM, uh, HP and Lenovo and those kinds of things. Uh, this is really, really cool uh, because while I, I've, you know, laptops, I've, I've recently become a Team Red member and um, I'm wanting to have a laptop that has AMD for a long time and you couldn't really find one. So it's true. at least not one of like up to date hardware. So it's really great to see this happening because this allows you to have um, your whole stack uh, team red, which is cool. And they also said that this is going to offer up to twelve hours of general office use and up to tw- ten hours of video playback with these new processors. So that's Amazing. awesome. Yep. I mean, this is super exciting news. I there is not a week that goes by that I do not get asked what laptop should I buy with Ryzen in it. I hear you talking about Team Red. I want a Ryzen laptop. I want a Ryzen laptop. And there are options out there, but the manufacturing process. And I think what happened is there was a point where nobody wanted to touch anything AMD. If you were getting an AMD laptop, it was in a two hundred dollar Walmart special that you avoided like the plague, unless you had no other option. And then Ryzen came out and kind of changed the whole game. And 
now you have something that's not only a competitor, but in many cases beats out Intel, um, depending on the line and processor and things, but certainly a great competitor. And the manufacturers have taken a long time to ramp up, probably a long time to try to build some trust to say, is this really what the community out there wants is for us to kind of change our lineup and throw the Ryzen in there? Is it a recognizable name that people are going to walk in a store and see and say, I want? And I think what you're seeing here is the answer it now is yes. The manufacturers all have a line of Ryzen laptop now. And now that line is continuing to expand bigger and bigger because it has brand recognition because people are going to walk in and see it. And I remember in my dad's family store, he loved IBM. And back then, and one of my favorite processors ever was the IBM Blue Lightning, 75 megahertz of pure awesomeness. And I just, I loved IBM processors too, because that's what my dad loved. And they were reliable. But people started coming into the store and saying, hey, you have that Intel inside thing, that Intel inside thing, because the commercial started running and running. And we realized we're going to go out of business if we don't start adding Intel into our lineup. And that's what I think why you're seeing it took why you're seeing that it took so long for manufacturers to throw Ryzen into their laptops is again, like I mentioned, that brand recognition and making sure it's something consumers understand and want. And I think AMD has done a fantastic job getting their name back out there. You're getting 14% faster content creation on these. Uh, with their Vega graphics integration, which is amazing. So you're getting not only a great CPU that is power efficient, but you're getting a very powerful Vega graphics card included with that as well. You're getting lots of security features that the Ryzen Pro processors have. Um, just it, It's just a fantastic thing to see that HP and Lenovo are finally going to release these because I'll finally be able to point people, just go get this and stop asking me that question, which would be great too. I uh, I can't say for much on with AMD on the uh, on the laptop side of things, but I've been running my AMD um, Ryzen uh, in in my desktop now for a, over a year. It's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Um, I my last processor in 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 this machine, which was pretty old, I think it was like an AMD Phenome or or something something to that effect, and that always served me well. So I thought one good turn deserves another. So I got the uh, I got an AMD uh, AMD Ryzen to follow up. And it's absolutely wonderful because also you don't have to necessarily have UEFI. Like it actually, you can switch it over to the old BIOS, which it, it and, and it almost it pretty much supports Linux as a first class citizen. In, in right. Um, I've had zero problems whatsoever with it. The BIOS is nice, and you can you know it's, it's all straightforward, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it, it's one of those things where when it's all working, you almost don't even know it's there, kind of uh, you know, kind of thing. And and that's very much been the case with AMD for me, uh, and, and and the Ryzen for me is that um, it's just it just completely does everything that I've wanted it to, and um, and it ain't it's not even, they're not even that pricey, really. Yeah. I mean, if you look at an Intel equivalent, you'd probably be paying a fair hundred, you know, a couple of hundred quid more. But um, you know, I'm running pretty fast, you know, games. I'm doing the multimedia streaming, you name it, and the AMD. And it's 16 cores or whatever it is. It's just taking it in its stride. Like I haven't even come close to maxing out this thing. It's wonderful. That's the kind of that's the interesting thing. So I came from the Intel i7 6700K, and now I have the Ryzen 2700X. I don't think I've ever seen the processor CPU usage go above 30%. That's gaming and streaming at the same time. Obviously, some of that gets handed off to my video card, but I can't get the CPU to actually be stressed. It just doesn't stress. There's nothing to throw at it to use everything that's there that I found yet, and that's 
an amazing experience to me and testimony. I mean, the i7-6700K was a great CPU as well. Um, but this, I just absolutely love. So you're officially Team Red, right, Chris? Everything mm-hmm. you have is Team Red? Uh, no, actually, no. I do have the, uh, there is an Intel in the Entraware laptop, but I, gotcha. I got that. I got but that you laptop. don't have NVIDIA stuff anywhere. That's what we're concerned about. Oh, I've got an NVIDIA graphics card. Oh, gosh. Okay, we're going to have to oh. kick you off the show. Sorry. Oh. No, it was nice having you. It was nice having you. You're running the Intel, or you're running the AMD CPU with an NVIDIA GPU, which I've done in the past as well, and that works great because some people get confused yeah. about that. They think, oh, if I have an AMD CPU, I have to have an AMD GPU, and that's not the case at all. And no, it's uh, zero problems whatsoever. And actually, it's it's an NVIDIA GTX 970, so it's not the newest um, card around. But again, it's you know it's always it served me well. I'm not exactly running a high def monitor, so it's not so I don't really need anything faster than that. But yeah, the two have worked together uh, flawlessly, as if they were you know from the same uh, manufacturer. Nice. Red Hat is going further with ARM. While getting Linux to run on ARM-based laptops has been around for a while, Red Hat is looking to make Linux support more official and smooth in the coming months. Now, I had a chance actually to speak with Brandon Johnson about this and talk to him about the um, about what Red Hat is doing. They're going to be working with the Fedora team uh, to get uh, these ARM laptops uh, very soon, and that's very exciting. The other thing that is pretty neat is that ARM is going to be a major focus of the release of RHEL 8. And so as RHEL 8 comes out, they are going to be putting a focus on the ability to run on ARM-based appliance-like machines. Now, I asked Brandon Johnson specifically if that would be for, uh, if they would be geared towards Raspberry Pis, and he said no, not not necessarily. While it would obviously uh help on the on the Raspberry Pi front, really what they're looking for is more commercial grade ARM style devices because ARM is essentially, as we know, doubling in power every year. And so it makes sense yeah. to Red Hat to, 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 to be there and allow people to use Red Hat as an enterprise operating system to run on some of these devices. Um, ARM-based computers are becoming more popular and the limitation of Chrome OS and even Windows iteration often makes them difficult to utilize for productivity. So full-blown Linux solution and optimal power answer this and is a less hacky approach to getting Linux to work on ARM laptops. So this is a very welcome change and something we're excited to see uh, with things like the Pinebook Pro and more refined ARM hardware from Lenovo and HP. Obviously, all of the compute sticks that are coming out that you can plug into your TV that just have a little HDMI dongle and they have a, a small little ARM computer inside of them. The ability to run Linux on those things is going to be key and a huge advantage to those who want to kind of branch out. And again, as Ryan was saying, play with something other than the go-to standard of Intel. Yep. So I, I was super excited about this news. I'm also excited about everything we're seeing in the extension in the ARM arena, like the Pinebook Pro that we're going to have here. There's a lot of ARM hardware that is now getting more and more refined from manufacturers like Lenovo, HP, and Dell. It used to be you'd pick up an ARM-based laptop in the store, and it just felt like, I mean, the keyboards would like flex in. Yeah. The monitor was all blurred out. It was just a big pile. And, of- and, and honestly, even the even even if you look past the hardware build, the actual performance, right? Like yeah. you go to you go to boot these things up, and the reality was even the actual performance where you'd get you'd get into this thing, and it's like, well, this driver didn't quite work right, or the you know the mouse would would freeze up a little bit because the desktop environment had some stupid bug in it. And there was just all sorts of weird things that would occur. And, and now what we've seen is 
what you I think what you watched was you watched the industry look and look over and go, hey, look at that $35 Raspberry Pi. I wonder if we could use that. And I kid you not, this is a real example in a medical device. Could we use the Raspberry Pi to power a medical device? And I think the arm industry and I think software manufacturers like Red Hat went, whoa, that's not what we had in mind. Like it was designed to teach kids how to use computers. It was not meant to be put inside people's bodies. That's crazy. Uh, and so they 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 kind of reevaluated, and then you had hardware manufacturers that went back and said, "Okay, if you want to use this ARM infrastructure in that kind of way, let's make an ARM computer specifically for commercial purposes." Now, what you're seeing is the other side of that, where is Red Hat is coming in and saying, "Okay, you're making a ARM computer. Now let's give you some software that's designed for it and will support it at an enterprise level, just like we would, you know, workstations or servers." Yep, I think that's fantastic, and you know. If you look at Chrome OS and you've ever played with it, it's not a terrible operating system, but it is terrible for anybody wanting to do anything productivity-wise. The way the file management system is set up, the way it wants to force integrate everything into the cloud. Uh, So local storage not only is completely limited because most of them almost come with nothing, but also just trying to find files or arrange files within it is terrible. And even using Linux on top of it, which is an option, still you've got this fractured operating system leaving files in two different areas of the file manager, and it's just a mess. And then you look at Windows, and you're looking at this ridiculously bloated operating system on top of hardware that's just not meant Uh, Not enough RAM, first of all, and just not enough processing power to really implement it. So Linux is the perfect optimal solution for ARM-based here because you can make it as heavy and light as you want. And Michael, I know this was a pet peeve of yours for a long time, but it kind of reminded me of, you know how people used to always say KDE is really heavy? And, you know, the reality is you could strip it down to be as light as any other desktop out there. That modularity in Linux is why something like an ARM laptop, depending on what power or RAM or whatever the hardware, you were talking about a medical device there, Noah. I mean, you know, you could put minimal amount of hard drive and you could customize very easily by just removing some of the, you know, overly graphical features or things that you wouldn't need on that medical device to, you know, accommodate Linux very easily. It's the perfect operating system, honestly, for ARM hardware, I think. Yeah, and also the, the the medical device is interesting because there was this one project where they did take a Raspberry Pi and did like an uh, like an automatic insulin pump uh, using the Raspberry Pi to create it, and it was like more of a prototype thing that they kind of eventually turned into its own product. But they used the Raspberry Pi to get started. So like there's that like the arm is is becoming so much more important than it has been for years, and it has like so much potential on the like, on the enterprise level as well as on the laptop level. So I'm really happy to see that like there's there's a big backing behind the laptop side because as as Ryan said there are you know there, in the past there were some Chromebooks and some ARM based laptops like generic laptops that were just like flimsy nonsense really and now that we have stuff like the Pinebook and the Pinebook Pro that's coming out is really really cool to see because like the Pinebook first version is um, is actually impressively built for how cheap it is and all the like the specs it comes with. And then they announced the, the Pinebook Pro, which is going to be like an aluminum body or something like that. Like the yeah, the, the amount of I, I can't wait to buy it. that thing. Yeah, the exactly. Second that thing comes out, I check. In fact, I'm gonna check right now again. Every time <laughs> I think of it, I go and check to see if I can buy a Pinebook Pro. I can't wait to have a Pinebook Absolutely. Pro. Absolutely, I completely agree. Yep. 
All right. So up next in the news. So when I saw this article, I wanted to bring this up and discuss it with all of you because I wanted to kind of get some insight into your thoughts on uh, what's going on. So work is continuing. The article is work is continuing from Canonical to add ZFS support in the Ubuntu desktop along with ZFS root partition support. While the work is progressing, it will likely not be completed by 19.04, but may show up in the 19.10 cycles. The goal is to allow for more simplified ZFS support on Linux with their stock kernel packages. But then I noticed at the same time, Red Hat is working on Stratus for their storage and SUSE is pushing ButterFS. And some are starting to complain. I'm seeing in different forums. I'm seeing Reddit posts about it and about bringing up old articles as well about this because this apparently is not the first time that this is a legal gray area for Canonical due to the Oracle Sun CDDL licensing and its compatibility. So I really wanted to bring it to the experts here and ask you guys, what are your thoughts on this fork in the road with the file systems? You've got each player going their own route then you have a bunch of people saying Canonical's going down the wrong route. What do you think? Well, I mean, it's, I mean, Noah's obviously a big fan of ButterFS, so we're going we'll to get to <laughs> in a second. Um, but uh, this is actually really cool because the ZFS is, um, is, is a really useful file system, and it's been around. Like, it is unfortunate that Sun decided to use a license that is technically not incompatible, but at the same time not compatible with, with uh, the GPL. So it's like it, the GPL has requirements that the that the CD, CDDL kind of, in a way, is like like abrasive to that requirement in the sense of like you're it, it'll it's more open but at the same time kind of contradictory to the GPL, which means that it is technically compatible, but at the same time that there is that gray area. Um, so uh, ZFS is really cool because of like how um, how expandable it is and how reliable it is and all the compression tools that it has. So I think overall this is a good thing. And if there, there's also there are other um, distros that are working on making ZFS support, but and there's only the, I don't think there's any way for any of these projects or these distros to not just except that there's there's this gray area is going to be there because it would require Oracle to relicense it, and that's pretty much probably never going to happen. What do you think, Noah? I, I think that ZFS someday will become the only file system we use on servers. I think there's going to rapidly become a, uh, a point where ZFS addresses is such a robust uh, file system that has so many features that there's going to be a point that anybody that wants to run something seriously on a server runs it on ZFS. And I say that because as a, as a, as a true bona fide Linux guy, if I have to store something, I go through the trouble of spinning up a FreeNAS server so that I can use ZFS. And then I map that with NFS back over to my CentOS box to actually use in production. Because if it's important data, I'd rather it be sitting on ZFS than even X4 or XFS or the renowned and my beloved ButterFS. <laughs> uh, right, I tend to, I tend to trust ZFS just a little bit more than ButterFS most days. Uh, that end with why. So I so I've gotten to a point now where I I believe that as ZFS starts to come over to Linux and you start to see it integrated, I think that's I think that's going to become the de facto standard. To in response to the license thing, uh, what I would tell you is that for years and years and years, companies were concerned with using Linux in enterprise because they were concerned of what the license snafu might entail. 
And nothing ever came of that, right? Like there's still people out there today that are like, well, I couldn't use Linux in my business because uh, you never know. Someday the Unix people are going to come back and say, yeah, come on, that's not going to happen. I, I, I think that the people that have designed ZFS and I think that the license holders and all of those things tend to work out. And I think what you're going to find is that's that's going to be a repeat of the of the Linux licensing structure where it just ends up being no big deal, even though there's some people that were worried about it. Chris, any thoughts on this? No, <laughs> you're like, hey, I'll just use whatever it tells I'm, me. I'm, well, I mean, I, I guess I'm one of those people that's like ext4 has. There you go. <laughs> it's kind of the one that kind of defaults for most. But one of the things that I thought interesting, I wanted to get your opinion on for the group is you have Red Hat going one direction with Stratus. Mm -hmm. You have SUSE pushing ButterFS, and and I get that we all love ZFS, and I've been playing with it a lot since I've been working on my FreeNAS server, obviously, uh, but they're going towards the ZFS. Is this another situation where we're just going to have everybody pushing their own path because they all want to be like, you know, have their own way of doing it, nobody collaborating, and so we just continue with our fractured ways? Well, it usually does come round to, you know, one winner, um, or at least that's how sort of history, even when it comes to something like System D, where there was a lot of fractured ideas about, well, actually, we'd rather not have System D. And then eventually, pretty much all, uh, you know, OSs then came around to, to using System D, barring a few exceptions. And even actually something like MX Linux even has the option to switch out for, for System D. So I suspect there will be one that, that, that comes over uh, supreme, and I think it's just going to be a case of, I don't know, time will tell on it, I guess. I know that uh, Linux Mint are actually trying to push ButterFS uh, because of its snapshot ability, um, and mm -hmm. they're trying to bake it into their, their backup tool. So uh, I can't say I've ever sort of trusted ButterFS enough to really put, put <laughs> my... Uh, to, 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 to let it back up anything genuinely important of mine. But it would be interesting to hear if um, from, from the Linux Mint community how that would how that's going for them. Yeah, I yeah. think ButterFS has is, got a lot of cool ideas and a lot of the, the approaches. It's just like there are certain things that are like missing that are um, are just unfortunate in the sense of like certain types of RAID don't doesn't really work for ButterFS and you know and, and a lot of times if you if you install OpenSUSE which is the the SUSE is the ones ba are backing ButterFS if you open if you install OpenSUSE there's a multiple different structure it's not just ButterFS and, and that's it it's like multiple different uh, file systems depending on what the purpose is um, but I think that ZFS is a uh, is is definitely the the de facto for um, you know for, for for something, if you want the storage to not worry about losing those files, and it's like the like the, the best like NAS approach, and I think that it's it's interesting because um, without this licensing snafu thing, um, ZFS would probably be already adopted heavily because we've already had. I was going to ask you that if this licensing issue wasn't here, would this whole issue be mute and everybody would just be on ZFS? I is think that, that is yes. complete, complete yes. guarantee. Yeah, without this licensing gray area, ZFS would already be the dominant one. But we're going to get there anyway, though. I really believe we're going to get there anyway. I mean, do, do, you, do you, I guess, Michael, since you're kind of taking the opposite side, I'll ask you, do you really believe that there's a time, do you really believe that 10 years down the road, CentOS, Ubuntu, uh, you know, the big server distros aren't going to support ZFS out of the box? It's not just going to be a checkbox? I think they're going to support it out of the box. I just don't think that they're going to put all their eggs in this, that, that basket. Like, I think that ZFS, without the licensing thing, ZFS would already be the de facto. You know, okay, so... So what I would say to that is that's a good thing. I don't want 
everybody to just accept something as a de facto standard and stop innovation. I just want, I want support out of the box so that I can click a box and then I can have ZFS. I want that. I don't want Red Hat to stop inventing the next ZFS, right? Because yeah. as, okay, so to Chris's point, yes, X4, I've never had a problem with it. Never had a problem with X3. Like they're great file systems and I, I have no reservations about my data not being safe. Now I have some reservations on if a drive fails, um, which wouldn't be affected by ZFS because it's going to handle being able to move data between multiple drives and stuff like that. Whereas X4, if you don't layer um, like LVM on top of it, you're not going to have that that kind of functionality. But if everybody was just happy with X4, we wouldn't even have ZFS, right? So I don't want to stifle innovation. I'm glad that there are people out there that are not going to accept it as a de facto standard and will continue to develop. That's good. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that you're right. I mean, Ubuntu has already been working on making support for ZFS for a while. Um, So I think that they'll probably have it because they were they were trying to release it for 1904 but it doesn't appear that they're going to get it to that like that ready so with 1910 if they get it like a solid release they might even offer it in the server function of the 2004 LTS which would be really interesting to see if they do that because that's, that's that would be like kind of a game changer as far as like what file systems are used in the Linux world for you know enterprise and that kind of thing interesting uh, when you um, set up something like a DigitalOcean droplet, it then it, it uses just a standard image, doesn't it? And then sets you straight up there and then. So you don't even do you even choose the um, the file system for for DigitalOcean droplets? No, no. So I suppose in in in, in sort of cases for for me who aren't particularly savvy to such things, I, I suppose would we even notice a difference over time if if that's effectively what we're looking for one of the um one of my one of my uh, uh not complaints but one of my criticisms of DigitalOcean has been uh i would really like to see the option to and they're working on it but i would love to see the option to use a standard iso because what you have found in with and this is true this is not DigitalOcean specific it's any vps provider they use different uh, they use slightly modified ISOs or they use slightly uh, modified versions of the distribution. And sometimes those are not binary compatible with uh, software. And so we've run into issues where we go to spin something up on a VPS, on a VPS provider, doesn't work. But when you install it with the actual ISO image, uh, then it's there. Now, thanks to DigitalOcean's community guides, there's a bunch of guides on how to uh, essentially suck up a installed distribution and then move it over to a droplet and, and you can move it that do that with a QCOW2 file. So that is a possibility and 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 there is a workaround for it, but it would be nice to be able to just upload an ISO and actually install. And if we went that route, then you would have the ability to actually choose your file system. Hmm. So let's move on to some gaming news. And uh, first is this really, uh, I'm, I'm excited that this is happening because it, it shows that the company is putting like, you know, putting it, the effort into maintaining their releases, even though even after the, the game has already been released. And that is uh, As- Aspire Media has confirmed that the DLC that was announced by Gearbox for Borderlands will be coming to Linux. So if you yeah. have uh, Borderlands 2 or Borderlands pre-sequel, you'll be able to get the enhancements of the... Uh, like the 4K display and the, the better textures and the like, the overall like ambient, uh, like anti-aliasing and all that stuff for Borderlands because Borderlands is a really, really great game uh, franchise and they have a lot of cool features and the, but their style is like super unique and like so ha- like getting that upgraded to kind of see like what can be like for the next version of Borderlands that's coming out. Uh, I don't know maybe this year or something. Um, that's really cool that they're doing it because it also shows that Aspire while you know, if you already have this, these upgrades are free for 
uh, people who already own the game. So it's it's great to see that they're adding it to the people to like to continue to to develop their port for the Linux uh, platform. Yeah, it's it's really important because for there are some cases where we'll get the game on Linux, but then they'll release DLC and they're not they don't spend the time to give us the DLC yeah, for a Linux exactly. port. Uh, on a game and the DLC can be, I mean, that's a lot of the fun that you have with not only PC and being able to, you know, um, see the different enhancements that are done for remastering, but also some of the changes and levels and basically continuing to get value out of a game long past the first moment you bought it. Borderlands would definitely be in my top favorite games of all times category. Totally I just think it's one of the greatest first person shooters with, one of the funniest storylines it is a more adult level storylines you know like the language and things like that so i wouldn't recommend if you have kids to play this in front of them uh but certainly this is just one of the greatest game ips out there is borderlands 3 coming out but there's some controversy around that with the store and whether we're gonna see it, ever did it epic store and, exclusive yeah. and stuff yeah. but the epic store exclusive apparently is only going to be for a period of time while right. it's in beta so hopefully we'll get our hands on because they've done a good job of giving us all the other Borderlands natively to Linux uh, before. So hopefully we'll see Borderlands 3 as well. But Chris, I know you game some mm-hmm. Borderlands fan at all. Yeah, I like Borderlands too. I think a, a lot of Linux gamers really should keep Borderlands pretty close to their heart because I remember when Steam first came to Linux and I think Borderlands 2 was a very early release uh, mm-hmm. You know, on that platform. It was one of the very early ports to Linux. And... Um, and I think that yeah, I think you're right. I think the 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 Epic Store for specifically for Borderlands Three is is only a timed exclusive. So I would be I'd be really disappointed if they didn't bring it back to to, to Linux as well because it's had so much adoration from the from the Linux gaming community as well. I don't know any person who games in a widespread capacity that hasn't at least picked up Borderlands Two. And you know I'm not a big shooter person in general, but Borderlands Two is one of those games where you can drop in for like half an hour an hour yeah. and just make some progress and then get back to your life and then come back you know it's it's not one of those games where you you have to be too involved you can be you know you can be as involved in it or or as much of a casual gamer as you like um i do believe that there is already borderlands 2 dlc which is already linux compatible so it's yeah. there is promise um promise in that regard but um and also it's good to see that they're making some graphical improvements uh, for those those of us without 4K monitors, I don't even have a high def monitor. I'm I'm on um, 1440 by 900 resolution. What is that like CRT? You just <laughs> see everything in green. It's the one. It's the. It's not far off, but I can't throw out working, you know, stuff. I mean, it it, it yeah. works. It's uh, it's fair. But... Yeah, and I even actually picked up a backup monitor from a second hand sale, same resolution, but it was eight quid. I mean, you can't say no to that, can you? You know. <laughs> You're very much like Michael, I could say. Yeah. <laughs> like I agree that, that as far as Borderlands goes, like they, the the interesting thing is that uh, Gearbox hasn't done any development for the Linux version of of Borderlands. Uh, that was all done by Aspire Media, and we haven't really got any information about whether Aspire Media is trying is planning to make a port of Borderlands Three or not. Um, so if you would like to, I'm not saying you have to, but if you would like to tweet Aspire Media and ask them about it and get and you know, let them know there's a lot of people who want this game, um, you know, there's that that's an option for you. But a nice tweet, not nice, like, yes. hey, your site's crap. Do you want to hire me? Type of tweet, right? Like, not I that tweet. Really yes. Yeah, the, not, a thank you very much for all the stuff you did for Borderlands Two and pre sequel and everything. That kind of tweet. 
Uh, yeah, because the enough. game is awesome, and being able to play it was is all thanks to Aspire Media. So that's that is fantastic for them. And uh, if you haven't played Borderlands Two, Borderlands pre sequel is fun. Borderlands Two is awesome. It's like it's yeah. it's one of the best games ever with the uh, probably arguably one of the best villains ever. Um, so like it's, if you haven't played it, you definitely need to Noah and. Uh, <laughs> Name, listen, name a time. Listen, I keep hearing all these uh, rumors about a, a Destination Linux gaming night, but uh, so far I haven't been invited to one. So there's well, that. if we set a time, Michael wouldn't show up on time, anyways. Uh, that's the that's, problem. That's here, not here, untrue. Pick a time. Pick a time. Tell Michael three hours earlier, and then I'll meet Ooh, you there. At the, yeah. yeah. And then Chris, I'll, would you join us for a gaming session? Absolutely. No. Nice. Okay. Whatever time we say, show up three hours after that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fine. Whatever. <laughs> But he doesn't deny it. See, that's what I love yeah, about you. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's not incorrect. I was late to this episode, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> Super Tux Kart is one of the most, is the most beloved Linux game and continues to get improvements. A new uh, release candidate, 0.10, is out and includes improvements to its multiplayer support. In addition to improved online play, they have replaced the old mansion track with upgraded Ravenbridge Mansion. Additionally, the Black Forest add-on is now in the official track set. Cart classes have been rebalanced and fixed many unintended shortcuts and issues with the maps. The game is entirely free and open source, so if you've not tried Super Tux Cart, you need to. It will be available in your distribution's native repository, I highly suspect. You can pick it up almost everywhere, and I think you can pick it up as a flat pack as well. I know you can get it as a uh, snap. I'm not sure about a flat pack, but probably. Um, I, yeah, I, I would expect so. Anyway, it's, it's pretty much, you can find it pretty much everywhere. In fact, you can even download the binary off the website and just run it as, as, um, as is. That's how I uh, got to trying the release candidate. I played it on stream, I think it was the day before yesterday, and the improvements are actually looking pretty nice. Um, most The most striking ones have been the graphics, um, and people have might have scoffed at the not-quite-graphically-fidelity. They, they might have scoffed at it not being necessarily as nice-looking as perhaps some of its AAA competitors, but they've right. certainly stepped up the graphics, um, their graphics game uh, lately, I didn't get too much of a chance to play the online play because it's still being very much in its early stages. There aren't too many people around to play. Uh, but it, yeah, it is actually one that I do recommend people check out because it's it has this real charm. Like it's not just the it's not trying to sell you the same kind of experience that commercial for profit games uh, are trying to sell you. It's it's a by the community for the community type type of game. You race as all the little uh, as the Linux and BSD mascots as well, so you can play as Tux the Penguin, as Zoo the XFCE mouse. I didn't know that they were called Zoo. Yeah. Um, uh, there's Conky as well. And one of the things that I really do and really am quite impressed with Super Tux Cart is that their their add-in, um, their add-on framework as well. You can download carts from like five years ago, and they still work. They just drop in and work. You can play as the transmission thing i don't know quite what it is but they've turned the logo into a vehicle and you can just race as that vehicle nice. um, and for those of you who, who are thinking about checking it out right here's what I, I highly recommend you do right you go to the follow the leader mode which is effectively you have a lead car you have to stay as close to second place as possible so you can't overtake the car but you've, you you have to stay you know 
behind them, but you also have to stay in front of your, your competitors. Then up the number of AI carts to the maximum that you're allowed. Um, and play on the Scotland map as well. That's always a fun map, right? Because it's absolute bedlam. So you've got like all these countless Linux mascots just trying to bash each other off the road um, while trying to maintain second place. So you, it, it doesn't spread out like you do with a normal race where you get, you know, people, you know, run ahead in the lead and fall back behind at the back. No, you, you get like it's absolute, uh, absolute chaos there. Um, also, another good mode in it is the, and I'm, I shouldn't really refer to it as a Rocket League mode, but it is a <laughs> Rocket League mode, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because the interesting thing about their Rocket League mode is that it actually predates Rocket League. Um, I, I think I reviewed it on my channel some time ago, and um, I think I might have offhandedly referred to it as based on Rocket League or ripped off from Rocket League, and, uh, and I, was, uh, I was corrected. Um, with evidence, actually, I was pointed to a forum post where they were actually working out this particular um, football with cars mode, or I suppose as Americans might refer to it, soccer with when, cars when mode. Did they, when, when was the forum? When was the post? Like, what was the year that they had that, that discussion? Oh, like, I, I can't remember now, but it's certainly, um, you know, well in advance of, of Rocket Well, League, there's, yeah. there's a difference between being advanced of Rocket League and being advanced of the people who made Rocket League because they also made another version in 2008 that was the same ah. idea of the game, but it wasn't called Rocket League at the time. It was called Supersonic Acrobatic, Acrobatic Rocket Power Battle Cars. Oh, okay. Well, it they might make... not necessarily. But then they decided that that acronym was, uh, <laughs> was a little unpronounceable, yeah. so they uh, went with Rocket League. A little League. bit ridiculous. And also, they had people who were like game critics who refused to review their game just because of their name was so ridiculous and they didn't want to write it out. Um, but yeah, so they, were they like, tried to review it, but but YouTube wouldn't word wrap that far. So <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So but anyway, it's still I agree that, that that mode is really fun. It's it's ridiculous, but it, it is a really fun mode because it, it's like if I don't know if you could play that online. I, I hope you can because that would be amazing. Um, but uh, I, we me and Ryan actually got the chance to play uh, Super Tux Kart online. And uh, it was, we had a couple of people with us as well. And I just want to point out that Ryan cheated. <laughs> uh, there was there was uh, absolute evidence. I have repl replays well, did, and everything. Did he? Uh, did 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 what, what did he do? Did he show up on time <laughs> and practice beforehand? And no, I don't know if he oh. practiced. He, uh, he was definitely there before oh. I was, but I was I was given the notice late, so it wasn't oh, my fault in this particular situation. But I do have replays, and uh, I do have examples where he was using illegal weapons in the game, and therefore <laughs> uh, it was totally. Listen, uh, this is. Null. Let me picture the game for you. Here's the wall and the track, and here's Michael's car. And that was Michael the whole time. And then the rest of us were just going that, around the crash that's site. That's ridiculous. Race. I did hit the yeah. wall a couple times, though. That's true. <laughs> Our spotlight, software spotlight this week, is Keymon. That's a utility to show a live keyboard and mouse for teaching and screencast. It has a simple and really nice-to-use graphical inter interface that will show you how long the clicks of the mouse are, the presses of the keys are. This is a uh, software that I was not... For previously familiar with but as a person who does a lot of tutorials and actually is scheduled to film his next tutorial this week on setting up a YubiKey to do uh, SSH authentication uh, shameless self-plug this is something that I'll absolutely take advantage of so the program is called Keymon that's K-E-Y-M-O-N and we'll have more information for you in the show notes yeah I love this utility I used it in my Lightworks tutorial which uh, the Patreon did you really for my channel, we're asking for a Lightworks tutorial. And one of the things I was worried about is when you get in to something, even when you're teaching it, there are times where you'll move down and do something real quick because maybe it's not the main point of what you're discussing. And 
then you'll go to talk about what you're talking about. But this allows, by displaying the on-screen keyboard and your mouse clicks, this gets the chance for them to see, even if you forget to mention exactly what you were doing or adjusting there, uh, exactly, they get to see the screen. So if they want to replicate it or you leave something out or forget to talk about the key that you hit there, then it, you know, it shows it right there on the screen so they can just watch uh, what you're doing right there. And it's really well done and it stays out of your way. And I like you can drag it anywhere as well. So it's not one of those things where it's like stuck in the upper you know, corner and you can't move it anywhere. It's just a really cool tool. Nice. And actually it's uh, I agree that, that that's a really cool, the, 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 just being able to move it around, being able to like not cover over the software that you're trying to demonstrate because a lot of these uh, types of software and other platforms will do that where they'll just cover the stuff you wanted to show. Exactly. Uh, but if you have like, I've done it many times where I would do a shortcut and then forget that the shortcut I used was a custom shortcut I decided. And then people ask me, how would you do that? And I tell them like, that's not how it works. Like, Okay, I need to remember that these things exist, and I have to change the the shortcuts and everything. Um, but I also have to say that this is a tip that Ryan uh, not only introduced uh, Noah to. This is the first time I've heard of it as well. So I yes. am looking forward to trying it out for my next tutorial. I finally, it's, found it's something all, you all didn't know. I was just going <laughs> to say it's almost as if like Ryan should be the one doing how tos instead of Michael and I. Yeah, no, just say <laughs> in this particular case, maybe. Finally, I find something you guys haven't already used. <laughs> so this tip and trick of the week, I know Michael and Noah are familiar with, but maybe you aren't, um, is wget and curl commands. So these commands or command line tools, I should say, allow you to download from FTP, HTTP, or HTTPS. Um, a lot of times people use them interchangeably. Uh, both can send HTTP post requests, both support HTTP cookies, both are designed to work without user interaction, like from within scripts, both are fully open source and free software, both were started in the 90s, both support Metalink. So it gets confusing when you should use one or the other, but I think the best way to put it is curl offers a lot of options that you can do more advanced things with it within your bash script, whereas wget just is for going out there and downloading information. So if one of the use cases, if you've not used these before and you're wondering when, why would I use some of this? In my bash script, for instance, the installer Noah mentioned that I use and others use sometimes when they have a brand new Linux install and it goes through and it finds the software and you just check the boxes and installs it for you. Some of the software is available in a repository. Some of it may be an app image or something that you need to get offline. Using wget, uh, I am able to, within the bash script, go out to that website, grab that link for the latest software, download it down uh, onto the machine, and then the rest of the bash script executes to install that for you. So that would be one use case for this, but I'm sure there are dozens or thousands of options more for them. They're both very powerful tools. Anybody else here use wget or curl? I use uh, both of them. I use curl more than wget because uh, there was, one of the things I love about curl's uh, function is that it is more a little bit more powerful. But also you can use it to send data rather than just uh, pull down data. So I have I use curl to send a payload of uh, information to uh, from one computer to another. And the reason I do it is because I wrote a, a script, a bash script that will allow you to uh, like basically Chromecast, but not a, not Chromecast, uh, cast. Uh, media to a Kodi device, and it, it'll be on your yeah. local network. And it uses curl to get the get the payload. Uh, well, the bash script figures out what 
plugin it needs to use and everything. And then it uses curl to send it to the device and say, use this plugin. Here's the media you want to play. And then it will set it up and play it. So curl is very powerful. I, uh, every server I log into, the very first thing I install is wget so that I'm able to get information down. Then actually, in, interestingly enough, the very second thing I do is I wget an authorized key file that's stored on one of our servers that gives access to the server to all of that gives, uh, puts all of the, um, employees that work for AltaSpeed Technologies installs their SSH keys into that server so that we're able to authenticate into it. Core component of that is WGET. Very cool. Uh, yeah, I, no, I, I actually used it just the other day when I was moving uh, a website over to NeoCities. And effectively, what I wanted to do was just pull down, pull down the website almost so that I could just get rid of it and forget about it. So I just W, I, I tend to use WGET because like I'm a bit simple and that just seems to be easier to use. Right. But uh, yeah, so I just managed to basically do a backup of a website, uh, easy as that, you know, easy as that. And, um, and then I could just sort of scrape that for information offline and, uh, and then put it back up as a NeoCity site. Very cool. All right. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. And we also love our patrons and coffee supporters. So I just want to give a special shout out to all of you for your support. We do a live show for patrons. So you can come and join us or be part of the show. You can join for just a dollar and that's darn near free. And you will get to see all the bloopers and behind the scenes and mess ups and everything else. Of course, this show, since we were lucky enough to have Chris on with us co-hosting actually went pretty flawlessly for the first time. So, Chris, you brought us a little bit of good luck there. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank, oh, thank you. you. I could be a lucky Welshman. There you go. <laughs> We're also on Coffee. That's a way that you can support the show. Coffee offers a nice monthly option that will allow you to have the same perks as Patreon. Uh, there'll be a link for the show in the show notes for the website to join Coffee. The perks include things like access to live shows, unedited versions of the shows, and our most sincere gratitude now this week you're going to get a little shorted because chris kept us on schedule and so we're this might be the earliest we're going to get done recording an episode of destination sure. linux and so there's but the, the 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 flip side is it'll be a much better uh patreon and coffee show thanks to chris yep, there you absolutely. go absolutely although to be fair the last time i was on I, it was one of the longest episodes so you know you got to address the balance <laughs> exactly. there you go i like it <laughs> So please get back with us and let us know what you think. Uh, ask any burning questions via the uh, numerous methods that we have here. The email comments at destinationlinux.org, Telegram groups, Discord, Twitter, Mastodon, and other ways you can find us over at destinationlinux.org slash contact. Uh, please keep the comments and questions coming. We love to read them and hear ways that we might be able to improve the show. We also love compliments, so send those along as well. Exactly. As many as you want. Yeah. And uh, the, the show doesn't start stop here. We actually have our own channels. You can go check out uh, youtube.com slash dosgeek for Ryan's content uh, where he talks about various different ha hardware stuff as far as like also testing different games in Linux, which is really cool. You can check out uh, Noah's content by going to the asknoahshow.com where he does the Ask Noah Show podcast about... Uh, and also radio show about like people allow it to call in and ask t questions about business and tech and Linux. Uh, you can also check out my content at tuxdigital.com 
uh, where you can also find the This Week in Linux podcast, where it's a uh, news podcast that has not just the headlines, but also very in-depth coverage over all the topics that are covered in the show. Uh, you can also find uh, Zeb. Zeb was not able to uh, appear to this, this episode, but you can go to his content at youtube.com slash Boss. And in the place of, of Zeb, thank you very much, Chris, for coming to the sh- to the uh, the to the show and help and help a co-host for us. You can find his content by going to youtube.com slash Chris Weir or Chris Weir Digital. And you can uh, remember to like that smash button and to share the show on social media. That's right. So everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. See ya.